Keep your Bibles open to Luke chapter 5. That passage that was just read will be our text this morning, Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 39. The last time we were in Luke chapter 5 together, we looked at the question that was raised by the scribes and Pharisees in verse 30. And there the scribes and Pharisees asked, Why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? And Jesus answered in verse 32, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In Luke chapter 5, verse 33, we read another question that was brought to Jesus. Why do the disciples of John, that is John the Baptist, fast often and make prayers? And likewise the disciples of the Pharisees, but thine eat and drink. In verses 34 and 35, we see Jesus answered this question. And then in verses 36 to 39, Jesus gave a parable, or three parables, that show the break between the old and the new. And the title of the sermon this morning is The Old and the New. Before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for the time that we have this morning to gather together and to look at your word, at this passage in your word. And Lord, we pray that as we study this passage together, that our hearts be soft and open to the working of the Holy Spirit, that you'd convict us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Lord, we rejoice in the great truth that Jesus taught here, that the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot be contained within or found in man-made religion. Lord, we pray that we take this great truth and apply it to our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, first, let's consider this question that was asked Jesus in verse 33. At the beginning of verse 33, we read, And they said unto him, that is, unto Jesus. But who are the they? If we just read Luke's account, it seems that the they refers to the scribes and Pharisees who had just posed the question back in verse 30. But in Matthew's account, we're told that the disciples of John the Baptist were the ones who brought this particular question to Jesus. And we can read that account in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 14. But it's possible that the Pharisees were also involved in this question. The Pharisees may have gone to the disciples of John with murmuring, just like we saw them go to the disciples of Jesus with murmuring earlier in John, excuse me, in Luke chapter 5. And it may be that they said to John's disciples, Have you noticed this discrepancy between yourselves and the disciples of Jesus? Have you noticed this discrepancy between your master, John the Baptist, and Jesus? But it seems that it was the disciples of John the Baptist who actually asked Jesus this question. Now John the Baptist, he was a prophet sent by God to prepare the way for the Messiah. In Luke chapter 7, verse 28, Jesus said, Among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. And here are his disciples, his close and faithful followers. And they believed that John the Baptist was the prophet sent to prepare the way for the Messiah. They knew that John had pointed to Jesus as the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. That was the confession of John when he saw Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 29. But they looked at the austere life of John and his disciples, and the life of Jesus and his disciples. And they had some questions. They had some questions. And notice that the disciples of John brought their question to Jesus. 
This was not a question like the one that was posed by the scribes and Pharisees in verse 30. Their question was not genuine. They weren't actually interested in the answer. They were trying to cast a cloud over the ministry of Jesus. They didn't question Jesus directly, but they murmured against his disciples. In contrast, the disciples of John directly posed this question to Jesus. And I believe that their question was genuine. I believe they genuinely didn't understand this behavior and they wanted clarification from Jesus on it. You know, no matter where you are in your walk with the Lord, it is a good thing to ask questions. Christ doesn't ask his followers to exercise a blind or ignorant faith. There's something that you don't know, something you don't understand, something that you wonder about. Don't hesitate to ask questions. Bring it before the Lord in prayer. Seek an answer in the Word of God. Go to a faithful brother or sister in Christ and ask for help. Our church is blessed to have four elders. You're welcome to come to us with questions. Dickie or Cloy, Brother Bell or myself. We would all be glad to sit down and study with you. Any one of us. We might not have an answer for you immediately, but there we'd be willing to sit and study with you. But there is a biblical word of warning about asking questions. James chapter 1, verses 5-7 through seven, gives us this instruction. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. Well, that's a great encouragement. Ask God for wisdom, and he will give it. But let him ask in faith nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed, For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. So if you're going to ask these questions, ask in faith. Don't be like the Pharisees who asked their questions to cast doubt and to stir up contention. Ask questions out of a genuine desire to know and to honor the Lord. And when you receive an answer, then obey. That's the request that the Lord will honor. Now look at the question itself as it's found there in verse 33 of our text. Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers? And likewise, the disciples of the Pharisees, but thine eat and drink. Now notice how they begin their question there. Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers? Likewise, the disciples of the Pharisees. They're not looking for clarification about prayers and fasting. They know why they pray and fast. The disciples of John followed in the ascetic life that was modeled by John the Baptist. The Pharisees observed various ceremonial fasts and times for prayer. They know why they fast and pray. And there may even be somewhat of an attitude of of self-righteous or self-confident assurance in them as they ask this question. And if indeed this line of reasoning was suggested by the Pharisees, it's not necessarily inquisitive as much as accusatory. Why don't you fast like us? Why aren't you more like us? Why aren't your disciples more like us? Why don't you fast and pray in the way that we do? And to help us understand this question further, we need to understand what fasting refers to here. There are no fasts that are explicitly required by God of His people in the law. The law that God gave to Moses put no direct requirement for fasting upon the people of Israel. Now, the language that's used to describe the Day of Atonement, it implies fasting. And that's how the Jews interpreted it. Uh, But fasting is not expressly commanded. 
And if that is indeed the correct interpretation, undoubtedly Jesus fasted on the Day of Atonement with the other Jews. From His birth, we see example after example after example of Jesus fulfilling the law at every point for those He came to redeem, for us His people. And certainly, He did not fail at this point. If fasting was required on the Day of Atonement, certainly Jesus and His disciples fasted. But this means that the question raised in this text is a question of human tradition and current practice at that time, and not a question about the law of God. Again, this is a question about human tradition and current religious practice, and not about keeping the law. This is very important for understanding the explanation that Jesus goes on to give here in this passage. And so, this is not a question about the law. This is a question about human tradition and current religious practice at the time. Now, the Pharisees had many traditions concerned about or involving fasting. They regularly fasted twice a week. We see this referred to several times in the Gospels. They also made a practice of fasting on significant holy days throughout the year. And they would fast during times of national need, particularly when there was need for rain. They had a very rigorous system of fasting uh, when there was a need for rain. We do not know what traditions or practices the disciples of John the Baptist may have had. All that we know for sure is what is said in this passage, and that is that they fasted often. They fasted often. Now, in contrast to the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees, The question in verse 33 says, But thine, that is the disciples of Jesus, eat and drink. There was a widely divergent pattern of behavior between the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees on one side and the disciples of Jesus on the other. On one side, there was this strict observance of these traditions and practices. And on the other side, there seemed to be no regard for those same traditions and practices. One side looked somber and religious, and serious. And the other side appeared to have no regard for spiritual things of this nature. And so you could understand why the disciples of John the Baptist would have been troubled by this when they observed it, or when the Pharisees brought it to their attention. John was not the Messiah. They understood that. He was just the forerunner. But his disciples appeared to be more serious about religious observances. Why is this? Why the discrepancy? The disciples of John the Baptist, either with the Pharisees or after being questioned by the Pharisees, they brought this question about fasting to Jesus. Why do we fast, but your disciples do not? That's the question they brought to Jesus. And look at Jesus' answer, beginning in verse 34. Jesus' answer. In verse 34, Jesus asked them, Can you make the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? In answering this question from John's disciples, Jesus calls himself the bridegroom. Now, this was familiar language to them. John the Baptist had used similar language when speaking about Jesus. In John's Gospel, in chapter 3, we're told that there arose a question between John's disciples and some other Jews. And so they came to John the Baptist and they said to him in verse 26 of John chapter 3, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan... Whom thou bearest witness, Jesus, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. And John answered his disciples, Ye yourselves bear me witness, that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. 
He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. Speaking of Jesus. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy therefore is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. So here we see John the Baptist referred to Jesus as the bridegroom. This was language that the disciples of John would have been familiar with, and Jesus uses it here, calling himself the bridegroom. And in our text, Jesus calls his disciples the children of the bride chamber. This was a term commonly used by the Jews to refer to the friends of the groom and bride who would attend the celebrations that surrounded a wedding. Now, a wedding is not a time for mourning. At least, we hope it's not a time for mourning. It should be a time for rejoicing. It's not a time to fast. It's a time to feast. And it was the tradition of the Jews that during the celebrations that surrounded a wedding, the children of the bride chamber would be exempt from certain religious practices or traditions. For example, it was their tradition that at the celebrations surrounded a wedding that took place during the Feast of Tabernacles, they were exempt from celebrating in those makeshift tents that were to be constructed for that feast. They were also exempt from their traditional times set aside for prayer each day. Now notice that in this example, Jesus does not appeal to the law in this illustration. Rather, he appeals to the traditions of the Pharisees, the very ones who were behind this question. And Jesus is pointing out to them that even their religious traditions acknowledge that a wedding is a time to rejoice and not to mourn, to feast and not fast. You know, interestingly, Jewish comments on the Messianic prophecy found in Zechariah chapter 8, verse 19, say this. This is Jewish comments on that verse. All fasts shall cease in the days of the Messiah, and there shall be no more but good days and days of joy and rejoicing. Now with this illustration, Jesus answers the question that was brought to him in verse 33. Why don't his disciples fast? Because they are with Jesus. Jesus is the bridegroom. He has come for his bride. This was not a time to mourn and fast. That would be inappropriate. This was a time to fast, to rejoice, to celebrate. The bridegroom, a spouse from eternity past, had finally come for his bride, his people, the church, to accomplish that work of redemption. And that is good news. That is cause to rejoice. But Jesus tempered that good news in verse 35, where he goes on. And he says, But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. Had Jesus just given verse 34, we may have been tempted to envy the position of these disciples who at that time rejoiced in the bodily presence of the bridegroom. But hard times would come for them. In their weakness, Jesus did not lay too heavy a burden upon them at this time. But as we study the Gospels, we see that by degrees, as they grew in their faith, Jesus began to lay heavier and heavier burdens upon his disciples. And as these burdens grew, the disciples thinned out. And more and more of the casual followers began to fall away until there was only a small core left. And things would get still harder for those disciples, as Jesus alludes to here, when the bridegroom would be taken away from them. And we can learn something here about God's dealings with His people. First, He knows the weaknesses of our frame. He knows what we can or what we will endure 
And He deals with us in light of that. Now, there may be times when it seems to us that the Lord endures great weakness in a brother or a sister in Christ and treats them with great gentleness while we feel like we are being treated with great severity. Do not grumble against the Lord. Trust that His wisdom is indeed greater than yours, that His insights are greater than yours and unbiased. Leave them with the Lord and go on faithfully in your walk in obedience to the Lord and the path that He has put you on. Second, we can learn from this passage that in those times when God comforts and shields us, as He did His disciples at this time, we should not assume that this will always be the case. Beware of giving yourself over to sloth and ease because the Lord has made your present path smooth and easy. When you're going through a time that the Lord has made provision for your rest, use that time as the faithful disciples did to grow in your faith, to draw nearer to the Lord, to learn more about Him. So that when the way grows hard, when it grows difficult, you do not fall away. And hard times would certainly come for these disciples of Jesus. Prophetically, Jesus says there in verse 35, the bridegroom shall be taken away from them. Jesus knew what was coming. The betrayal and crucifixion was not a surprise for Jesus. This wasn't a sudden turn of events. This was the purpose for which he came. One of my favorite passages which illustrates this is found in Acts chapter 4. All the people with power in Jerusalem got together. They plotted the worst evil they could imagine against Jesus. But all they managed to accomplish was the will of God. In Acts chapter 4, verses 26 to 28, the Christians in Jerusalem are gathered together and they're praying. And in their prayer, they say, The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against the holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Jesus knew the day was coming when he would be taken away from his disciples. He talks about it here in our text this morning. And when, his, when Jesus was taken away, then would his disciples fast. You know, we can glean from this that there is an appropriate time for us to fast. We can rejoice in our privileged position in redemptive history. The bridegroom came for his bride. He accomplished the work of redemption. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father, and he is coming back to receive us. We live in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, he has ascended to heaven, but he will return for us, his people. And we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us as the earnest of our inheritance. And this is cause for great joy and great rejoicing. And yet there are times when it is appropriate, even needful for us to fast. Times of mourning and repentance. Times of prayer. Times of spiritual renewal. These are all examples of times when it may be appropriate for disciples of Jesus Christ to fast. Well, so far from our text, we've we've seen the question that was brought to Jesus. Why don't your disciples fast? And we've seen the reply of Jesus. His disciples didn't fast because they were with the bridegroom. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, had come, and that was cause for rejoicing. There would be times when it would be appropriate for them to fast later. 
And after Jesus gives this answer about fasting, he went on to give three parables in verses 36 through 39. Three parables in verses 36 through 39. No man putteth a piece of a new garment upon an old. If otherwise, then both the new maketh a rent, and the piece that was taken out of the new agreeeth not with the old. And no man putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine will, be, will burst the bottles and be spilled, and the bottles shall perish. But new wine must be put into new bottles, and both are preserved. No man also having drunk old wine straightway desireth new, for he saith, the old is better. So these three parables, these three illustrations that Jesus gives. First, he says, no man puts a piece of a new garment upon an old. Well, why not? Why would you not put a new piece of cloth upon an old garment? Jesus says there in verse 36, well, the new maketh a rent. The new would rip the old. The old cloth has already shrunk, but the new cloth, as it shrinks with age, would tear that old cloth that had been sewn into. And in the end, the whole would be worse than it was at the beginning. And further, Jesus adds, the new agreeeth not with the old. The new cloth would not match the old cloth. They would not be the same in color or style. They certainly would not match in value. The new, in this case, was better than the old. Use old cloth to patch old clothing and keep the new cloth new. Second, Jesus said, no man puts new wine into old bottles. Again, why not? Why not put new wine in old bottles? Now, when we think about wine bottles, we probably think about those long-necked glass bottles that are ubiquitous with wine today. But in antiquity, wine bottles were usually made from animal skin or leather. And these bottles, they were somewhat elastic when they were new, but leather, as it ages, gets brittle, it hardens. Now, wine, as it ferments, it lets off CO2. And so if you were to put new wine into old wineskins that don't stretch, that pressure from the CO2 will build up and eventually the wineskin would burst. And then both the wine and the bottle will be ruined. In verse 38, Jesus said, new wine must be put into new bottles and both are preserved. And finally, Jesus said, no man having drunk old wine straightway desireth new. Now, what is the difference between new wine and old wine? Keep in mind, this is before the days of Louis Pasteur. Modern grape juice doesn't turn into wine because it's been pasteurized. The bacteria that would ferment the juice has been removed, and so that juice remains shelf-stable juice. But in the ancient world, that grape juice would begin to ferment almost immediately after it was squeezed. Now, grape juice that has naturally fermented is bitter when it is new wine. But as it ages, it becomes less bitter and more sweet. The chemical makeup of the wine changes, the tannins decrease, and so the wine becomes more sweet. And those who were listening to Jesus would have immediately understood this illustration. The old wine is better than the new. Someone who's been drinking that old sweet wine would not like that new, more bitter wine. Now, we have these three parables from Jesus, these three illustrations. But what do they illustrate? What spiritual truth is taught here? Very simply, the main point of these parables that Jesus is making is that the old does not mix with the new. The old does not mix with the new. Now, it's very important to recognize that Jesus is not talking about the Old Covenant, or what we might call the Old Testament, or the law. The law was good. Romans 7, 12. Wherefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. There was no problem with the law. The problem, of course, is with us. 
and our sin and our inability to keep the law. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill the gospel. The doing, the dying, and the rising of Jesus Christ. It did not destroy the law, but it fulfilled the law. Jesus did not teach, cast out the law of God. I brought something better to replace it with. No, Jesus came to fulfill the law, and he fulfilled it at every point. We could not meet the law's righteous demands. The law has a high standard for us, but the law's demands are righteous. God has every right to demand the holiness that the law demands of us. We could not meet those righteous demands. But Jesus, God incarnate, he came and he met the law's demands in our place. Our righteousness could not satisfy God's demands for righteousness. And thus we were under the wrath of God. But in Jesus Christ, we have this beautiful truth where God's own righteousness met God's demands for righteousness. And God was satisfied. Jesus made propitiation for us. He atoned for us. He satisfied God's wrath. And so the gospel call goes out and calls upon men to abandon their own righteousness. Our best, our best righteousness is as filthy rags. Even in our righteousness, the best of our righteousness is still sin. It will never be good enough. Study the law of God, and it will teach you that you don't measure up, that you fail, that you sin, that you can never keep the law of God. Do not rely on your own righteousness. Cast it aside and lay hold of Christ's righteousness. He kept the law at every point. He satisfied the just demands of the law. And the incredible good news of the gospel is that His righteousness, His perfect, unchanging, immutable righteousness is freely given to all who believe. We bring our sin, and Jesus gives us His righteousness. Come to Him in faith and repentance. Confess your sins to Him. Turn from your sin and turn to the cross of Jesus Christ. He stands ready and able and willing to forgive your sins and to give you His righteousness. And all of this is the result of the free and unmerited grace of God and His eternal plan to redeem His people for His glory. The greatest work that God has accomplished is the redemption of sinful men. The angels look at this and they wonder and they worship God that He could be both just and the justifier of the wicked. That's the gospel. And it's incredible and wonderful and beautiful truth. But if you take the law away, if you suggest that Jesus' ministry had nothing to do with the law, and that Jesus somehow taught that the old law and his new gospel don't have anything to do with each other, then what you've done is in effect gutted the gospel. You've removed the very thing that Jesus came to fulfill. That's why it's so important not to confuse what Jesus is saying here about the old and the new. He's not teaching that the law has nothing to do with him and his ministry. Rather, these parables are direct answer to the question that was raised there in verse 33. Why don't your disciples fast and pray like the disciples of John or like the disciples of the Pharisees? And remember, this is a question about human traditions and current religious practices. And Jesus is telling them, you cannot take the gospel 
and drop it into your old forms of religion. It won't fit. It doesn't match. It'll rip apart. It will burst. You won't like it. So it was for the Jews of Jesus' day. They had missed the point of the law. And instead of pointing them to their need for a Savior, the Messiah, they believed the law could be fulfilled with their own righteousness. And they had added their own rules and traditions to the law, such as the fasting that's brought up here in this text. And they believed that God was pleased by their rigorous keeping of these rules and traditions. They had their own religion. And they wanted to know how, or even if, Jesus would fit into it. And Jesus told them, you cannot add the new to the old. The old cannot bear the new. The old will burst. The new will spill out. Times and forms and names have changed. But all over the world, maybe even here in this room, there are still people who ask that same sort of question. How does Jesus fit into my religion? That may be any religion. It may be a religion of self. Undoubtedly the most popular religion in America today, the religion of self. Maybe a religion of humanism. Or a religion of rules and traditions to earn righteousness. On and on we could go. Where does Jesus fit into my religious experience? How can I add Jesus to improve the mileage that I get out of my religion? Our issues may be different than the issues that are raised in this text, but the biblical answer is the same. The gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't fit in our religion. The old can't hold the new. It won't fit. It doesn't match. It'll rip apart. It will burst. You won't like it. You can't add Jesus to the old. He takes away the old, and He brings in the new. Amen. 2 Corinthians 5.15 Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is what? A new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. By the grace of God, may we grasp this beautiful gospel truth and live in light of its revelation. May we see the implications that this has and live in light of this gospel truth. What are some practical applications we can take from this teaching? There are two applications that I want us to consider as we close. The first is in preaching the gospel to others. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not something that we add to the old to patch it up and make it work. The gospel isn't a band-aid that we put on our lives to fix our problems. The gospel isn't springs that we add to our wagon to help smooth out the bumps of life. The gospel isn't a patch that we can use to cover our flaws. The gospel of Jesus Christ calls upon us to abandon our old religion, anything that we rested in for righteousness, to abandon our sin. We must cast it aside and be made new in Christ. And when we share the gospel, we're not sharing a helpful tip. We are sharing life-transforming, and even more than that, life-giving truth. We were dead in trespasses and sins. And the gospel brings life where we were dead. You don't add the gospel on top of that. You're given life in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel isn't a patch for the old. It's a whole new thing. And the old does not mix with the new. 
So first, in preaching the gospel to others. But second, we need to apply this truth in preaching the gospel to ourselves. We are prone to forget. And even we as Christians can forget the powerful and practical truths of the gospel and begin to try to live in the old instead of the new. The power of Jesus Christ, the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is not contained in forms and practices and traditions, but in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And when you find yourself faltering in your Christian walk, when you are struggling with sin, when you become discouraged or downtrodden, don't go back to the old. Don't go back to forms and practices and traditions and good works and anything else that composes that external veneer of religion. It didn't help you when you were dead in trespasses and sins, and it can't help you now. They have no power. They have no ability. They cannot hold what you need. You must go to the new. Go back to the gospel. The doing, the dying, and the rising of Jesus Christ. We may falter, but He did not falter. We may fail and fall to temptation, but He did not fail or fall. We may become discouraged and downtrodden, but He is raised in victory and seated at the right hand of the Father. And why is this good news? Because we are joint heirs with Christ. All that He has is given to us in salvation. Praise God for the new, for the revelation of Jesus Christ. And by His grace, may we never be tempted to return in any way to the old. It has no power. It cannot help us. And we live in the new, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank You for what's revealed here in Your Word. Lord, how many times we may have read this passage and didn't even think about it. Lord, what You taught here. Lord, I pray that we would not be forgetful. Lord, I pray that those who are lost, who may be hearing this, never been saved, Lord, I pray that they would see in You the new the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're doing, you're dying, and you're rising again. Lord, I pray that you would do a work of grace in hearts and lives and bring life where there's only death. Lord, may hearts be convicted and turned toward repentance this morning. Lord, I pray for those of us who are Christians here. Lord, I pray that we would never forget the gospel. Lord, that we would never walk away from the power of the gospel, which is found in the work of Jesus Christ, that finished work the revelation of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we never turn away from that and go back to the old. It has no power. It can't help us. May we never be tempted to return to the old. Help us, Lord, to walk in the new. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.